Hello everyone and welcome. I'm your host, Joseph J. McAllister, welcoming you to another exciting edition of Midnight at the Cemetery, the show that delves into mysteries, UFOs, poltergeists, vampires, serial killers, psychic phenomenon, macabre history, and more. Tonight, we're broadcasting live from Pleasant Point Cemetery, where we have beautiful sea views and a cool ocean breeze. So sit back and relax. Dim the lanterns, put the horses in the stable, and make yourself a hot cup of apple cider, for we are going on a strange and delightful journey into the supernatural. Warning, tonight's episode contains discussion of an actual murder case, blood drinking, and a brief mention of animals being killed. Viewer discretion is advised. Tonight's topic is vampires, and I know what you're thinking. Bella Lugosi, Nosferatu, Vlad the Impaler, Elizabeth Bathory? No, we're going much deeper down the rabbit hole than that. Tonight, we're going to review an actual modern-day case of a vampire. And now, the case of James Riva, the schizophrenic vampire. Childhood James P. Riva II was born in 1957. He developed bloodlust in his kindergarten years. Riva had a history of mental illness as far back as 1975, when he spent time in a mental institution. Riva started showing signs that he was not a normal kid when he began drawing horrific pictures and eventually moved on to killing animals and even drinking their blood. Riva became increasingly convinced that his infirmed grandmother, Carmen Lopez, age 74, was a vampire who came to him at night to steal his blood. Murder. Riva had lived with his grandmother for about nine months at her home in Marshfield, Massachusetts, prior to the murder. Then he began living with his granduncle, Henry. On the evening of April 9, 1980, Riva told his granduncle that he was going to Plymouth the next day to see about a job. The next morning, April 10th, Henry drove Riva to Braintree, a division of PayPal, where Riva's father worked. There, Riva borrowed his father's car and drove to Marshfield. About 1.45, Riva talked to his high school teacher at the auto body store about fixing the brake lining on his car. At the time, his teacher did not notice anything unusual about Riva's demeanor. Riva then drove to a spot around the corner from his grandmother's house, which was located in Rexham Beach. The grandmother's home was a very small house lined with aluminum siding and a tile roof. It had a main floor and a cellar. He had recently been arguing with his grandmother mainly about his long hair and his need to get a job. He arrived at her house around 3 p.m. and found his grandmother lying alone on the couch. She asked him to do some washing for her, which he started to do. He then went down into the basement and retrieved some gold-painted bullets and a gun, which he had previously hidden down there in a gray box with some personal papers. He took the gun and went back upstairs to the ground level. When his grandmother saw the gun, she threw a glass at him. Riva then raised the gun 
and shot her four times. Then he stabbed her repeatedly in the heart. Then Riva drank the warm blood directly from her bullet wounds. Afterwards he carried her into the bedroom, poured dry gas, a fuel additive, all over her, and set her on fire. Then he rolled her wheelchair into the bedroom and snuck out of the house without anyone seeing him. Around 3 p.m., a painter working nearby, who had seen Riva enter the house earlier, was informed that there was smoke coming from the house. He called the fire department, and eventually the fire was extinguished. The house suffered some fire damage inside, but very little fire damage outside. The house was not burnt down as Riva had originally hoped, but remained. With all the evidence lying inside, now exposed for all the on-site police officers to discover. After leaving the burning house, Riva drove to Braintree to pick up his father, who he took straight back to the crime scene, his grandmother's now extinguished house, swarming with police, fire crews, neighbors, and onlookers. While there, in a conversation witnessed by neighbors and spectators, Riva admitted that he had been in the house earlier that day. Riva's attempt to cover up the murder was backfiring at lightning speed. At the scene, a lieutenant found the gray metal box. He passed it to the deputy fire chief who gave it to the Marshfield police. The day of the fire, Riva made persistent efforts to recover the box from the police, which contained his personal papers and some gold-painted bullets, all pointing directly back to him as the main suspect like a giant smoking gun. The bullets used in the murder and his personal papers all in the same box. This led to a confrontation with Lieutenant Lopez at the Marshfield Police Department, where Riva struck Lopez and was immediately arrested for assault and battery on a police officer. The final nail in the coffin. If Riva wasn't a suspect prior to this, he was now charged and in custody. To further Riva's problems, a small silver jackknife was found on Riva when they searched him at the police station. Prison. Riva's mother, Christine, visited him two times while he was in prison. Her conversations with her son were admitted as evidence via Riva's mom's testimony. Riva's mother said that Riva had told her that he had been a vampire for more than four years. That was when the voice came out of the sun, in the marsh, and told me I had to be a vampire, and I would have to drink blood for a long time. Riva said he had been talking to the devil. His mom asked him, how do you talk to the devil? Do you actually hear voices? Do you talk out loud? Riva said, no, it's just in my head. I ask questions, the voice answers me. It is the devil who answers my questions. On the morning of the fire, the voice had told Riva that this was the day he was going to die if he didn't kill his grandmother. Riva said he fought with the voice all day and didn't want to do it. Riva described to his mother shooting his grandmother and setting her on fire. He also told her that he had contemplated suicide, but the voice dissuaded him. Riva said the bullets had to be painted gold 
because if they weren't gold, they wouldn't find their mark. I didn't stab her and hit her on the head like they said I did, but I did drink her blood, because I have to, because that's what vampires do. I didn't want it to happen, and I kept telling the voice all day that I couldn't do it. Reva told his mother that he was a vampire and he would gain strength by drinking his grandmother's blood. But he told a psychiatrist that his grandmother was a vampire and would come to him at night and drink his blood. Reva believed that he was satisfying his masters in the netherworld by making a human kill. He stated that if he killed everyone who was mean to him, he would come back as a handsome man, have a car, girls, and his life would be fine. Turbulent Childhood Reva testified about the details of his childhood. At age four, Reva had an argument with his father and tried to call the police. When that was prevented, he tried to injure his father. In kindergarten, Reva drew pictures of bleeding human anatomies and people being shot. At the age of 13, he started drawing pictures of vampires and women with puncture wounds dripping blood. Later, he periodically began eating food with the appearance of blood, mixtures of oil, ketchup, and animal parts. He would go long periods without sleep and ran away from home several times. His school attendants suffered and he began having run-ins with the police. In 1974, he was admitted to McLean Psychiatric Hospital for six months. After his release, he continued outpatient treatment. Later, he was committed to a Westwood hospital because of threats to kill his father. He engaged in strange conversations with his mother and referred to voices from outer space that would be directing his body. At one point, he left an apartment that he was living at and disappeared for four months. He eventually turned up in Florida. After he returned, he killed a cat and removed its brain in an effort to learn how to fix his own brain. He told his mother that he drank the cat's blood. Other episodes led to being treated at Boston University Hospital, Tauntaun State Hospital, and the Mayflower Clinic. Trial At the trial, Dr. Kelly referred to a recording of the police questioning Riva on April 11, 1980, the day after the murder. Dr. Kelly testified that the recording showed that Reva was able to respond cogently to the questions put to him. He understood the questions. He made responses denying his involvement and even discussing possibilities of what might happen. He was not confused. He was able to organize his thoughts. And Reva's discussions with Dr. Kelly indicated that Reva could manage his behavior and operate in a way that was consistent with his self-interest, as did Reva's denial of the involvement in the killing. Due to Dr. Kelly's testimony, the judge denied a motion that Reva was not guilty by reason of insanity. And Reva was able to stand trial for the charges against him. At the conclusion of Reva's trial in 1981, the jury deliberated for three hours, finding Reva guilty of second-degree murder, arson, and assault and battery on a police officer. Reva remained solemn and emotionless during the reading of the verdict. Judge Brady presided over the case and sentenced Reva to life in prison.
He was remanded into custody of Walpole State Prison. He is serving a sentence of life 15 years for murder, plus an additional 10 to 20 years for arson. Parole Hearing Riva, now 63, testified at a parole hearing Thursday that he was tormented by delusions about vampires when he killed his grandmother and tried to suck the blood from her bullet wounds. He said powerful hallucinations led him to believe that vampires, including his grandmother, were stealing his blood and that the only way he could stop it was by drinking blood himself. But his mother Christine said Riva's actions leading up to and following his mother's murders showed that it was premeditated and well thought out, and that Riva was set on getting revenge on the grandmother because she had kicked him out of her home. In 1990, Riva stood trial for a separate crime and was found not guilty for reasons of insanity, for stabbing and almost killing a prison guard in 1990. At the time of the incident, Riva said that he had stopped taking his medication for schizophrenia. He said he believed that the officer was sneaking into his cell at night and draining his spinal fluid. It was a painful lesson that I cannot go off my meds. At the parole hearing, Riva described a childhood filled with physical abuse, which his family members denied. He also talked about psychological problems, hallucinations, and substance abuse. Riva said years of prison therapy and medications have helped him to control and better understand his mental illness that led him to torture animals murder his grandmother, and attack a police officer. Riva said, I believe I have been rehabilitated, but I have a paranoid slant on things. I've acquired skills and experience, and I've learned about the consequences of neglecting my mental health. Riva said that the dosage of his medication has recently been increased after he had a bout of paranoia where he believed that his brain was swelling inside of his head. Riva's attorney, Rebecca, said, Riva has been compliant in taking his medication for nearly three decades. He has become a deeply religious person in the Muslim faith and recognizes that he needs to take his medication for the rest of his life. The crime must be understood as a result of mental illness. He acted on delusions while acutely psychotic. Members of the community said that they would like to testify at Riva's parole hearing, but are afraid that if Riva is released, they may become his next victim. In 2009, Riva wrote letters to his mother from prison demanding that she confess to Riva's allegations of abuse. Conclusion Riva has been denied parole for the fourth time and currently resides in prison. I originally heard about Riva's case as a brief mention, uh, maybe a sentence on a video about people that believe that they were vampires. So I did a little digging and I found a web page with maybe a small paragraph about the topic and it still wasn't much to build an episode on. A little further digging and I was able to find the court case documents online and that's when this whole rabbit hole of craziness opened up and the strange peculiarities of this case. So this case was very interesting to me as a, a new slant on the whole vampire idea, the idea of vampires in the modern society, modern age, and the idea that, you know, it revolved around uh, a murder case and also mental illness. Well, that's it for today's topic, and be sure to hit me up on the Facebook page at Midnight at the Cemetery, and 
maybe write in some of your stories so that we can read them on the air about uh, any kind of paranormal events that you were involved in, cases or topics that you would like us to cover, or, you know, send in about a murder case or a potential kidnapping or something that you were involved in or something scary that happened in your life. And, and we can talk about it on the show anonymously or if you want to plug yourself and get your YouTube channel or whatever mentioned on the air, that's fine as well. Um, so write in, let us know how we're doing and you know whether the audio sounds good. We're kind of new. This is a first episode and... Just let us know how everything's going. Uh, whether you're enjoying the show or want to hear more or you don't want to ever hear it again. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Midnight at the Cemetery. And remember to hit the subscribe button so we know that we're not preaching to an empty cemetery. Until next time, this is your host, Joseph J. McAllister, reminding you, try to enjoy the light. Music featured on today's show is Dance of the U-Boat by Akash Gandhi and Bellissimo by Doug Maxwell.